All right, I think we've talked about everything there is to say about Laravel and Rails. Why don't we talk about Phoenix? So today we have a guest. So it's not just Andrew and I today. Today we have Chris McCord joining us. So Chris, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you're up to? Sure. Yeah, my name is Chris McCord. I'm the creator of a framework called Phoenix. It's an Elixir web framework, good for real-time applications and high concurrency. But that's kind of what I do. I spend my days working on the framework itself. Fortunately, my employer allows me to do that. So we can talk a little bit about maybe my open source work-life balance. But in general, I'm here and excited to talk about Phoenix. So I first heard about you, I think, through your employer. Your employer is Fly.io, whom we love. And I think the first place I heard about you was on the Fly blog, which is just one, it's beautifully illustrated, but two, it's hysterically technical and I love it. And y'all do an amazing job over there. So I'm familiar with Phoenix and I've done some research, but for the sake of the audience, can you tell us a little bit about what Phoenix is, where it kind of fits into, I guess, the full stack landscape out there, and then a little bit maybe about how it relates to Elixir and Erlang and kind of some of that stuff? Sure. The fly blog is, yeah, amazing. I feel like every post is wildly successful. So there's pressure to keep bangers out there. But yeah, we have a lot of fun writing those. For Phoenix, the origin story, I'll try to make it short and sweet. And I may get in trouble for saying this, but it's like the rails of Elixir. I think that will resonate with the broader community. People within the community may be like up in arms about that, but it's essentially the go-to web framework, batteries included for Elixir. And if you haven't heard of Elixir, it's a language that runs on the Erlang virtual machine. And if you haven't heard of Erlang, it's this more or less obscure language, at least for me, it was coming up through computer science education. I never heard of Erlang until I got out of school. But Erlang has been around for 30, 40 years almost. It was started in the 80s to run telephone switches. So this very, very niche language to solve telephone switches maps like extremely well to modern web applications and services. So they like they accidentally built this like concurrent distributed environment before like distributed computing was a thing and before even computers had multi-core. So they had this like very niche set of requirements that mapped really, really well to the multi-core age when CPUs started getting packed onto chips. So it's kind of this obscure language that was perfect for kind of modern web services. And that's what the creator of Elixir, uh, Joseph and Liam, saw in the language, started writing it. I got involved early on in like 2013 and started Phoenix. And we've been 1.0 since 2015. So it's actually, I think, almost nine years old at this point. So we've been around for quite a while, but Phoenix is really about utilizing all of that Erlang heritage for distributed programming, high concurrency, but doing it in a way that gives you this Rails or Laravel experience. So you can kind of use all this power and heritage, but without having to be like a, an extreme expert in these things. That's really interesting when you were doing your introduction and you were kind of introducing it as if people wouldn't know what it is. And I feel like coming from the rail side, everybody knows about Elixir and Phoenix because in a way it's kind of like, hey, that's where a bunch of the cool kids went, right? <laughs> so there's like a lot of rails heritage there, but it's interesting. I wanted to ask you with Phoenix. So Ruby and Elixir, very different, right? So it's very different technical underpinnings, I think, of the frameworks. To what degree does that, 
express itself or come out in Phoenix. So you kind of made the comparison like Phoenix is like rails in the Elixir ecosystem in what ways. And I mean, even without talking about live view, but in what ways does the framework sort of have a different expression than what rails was and is sort of historically because of those technical underpinnings from Erlang and and Elixir? One of the biggest things is the whole idea that like Phoenix is not your app. The way we build Phoenix applications is kind of like even a misnomer. Like you write a Elixir application that happens to use Phoenix. So there's a lot of crossover from the Ruby and Elixir community because Jose, the creator of Elixir, came from Ruby and I also came from Ruby. Jose was very prolific. So I think we had people's interest early on. But the biggest thing is like when you write a Rails application, it runs the show. Rails is running, like you boot a Rails process. An Elixir, Elixir is like this, an Elixir application is a collection of supervised processes, one of which is running a web server that is running Phoenix. So it's like I could start up an Elixir application, only part of which is running Phoenix, or it could actually be running multiple Phoenix applications. So it's a much less kind of global takeover of what it means to write an Elixir app. Whereas if you're writing a Rails app, it's running Rails. And that has some caveats and limitations. Through the commuters, if they're familiar with like Rails engines, if you want to run multiple Rails apps side by side, that becomes this like big abstraction that they had to add to the framework because everything's global. Like Rails.root returns the root of the Rails app that's running. And for us, it's like, no, you're booting an Elixir app that could be running all kinds of services, one of which could be could be Phoenix. You said that like calling it a Phoenix application is almost a misnomer. So you would boot an Elixir application that could be running multiple Phoenix applications or processes alongside some other processes. So you'll have to forgive me. Are we talking like, are these microservices? Is each Phoenix app its own little domain? And then what else in an Elixir app, what else is like running alongside these Phoenix apps? Sure. Yeah. You could think about it that way. It's kind of like the best of monoliths and the best of microservices. A lot of people tend to write their app in a way that they don't have a ton of small little microservices. But the way Elixir apps work is the concurrency unit that we use is called a process. It's like a really cheap thread. And those processes can message each other anywhere on a cluster of applications. So it's almost like if you could take a thread and then just say, give that thread some work, but that thread could be anywhere on the cluster. And in the case of like fly.io, anywhere in the world. And that allows us to do some really interesting things. So like a web request can come in and it's going to hit the Phoenix web server do some like standard cruddy stuff that you're familiar with, like you're doing a Laravel or a Rails app, but then like you could actually just do work on some process running on some other machine on the cluster. But the code that you would actually physically write to do that isn't like opening up a TCB connection, hitting a JSON API. You're just like calling some Elixir code that happens to be somewhere else. So I think those are kind of the two biggest things where like, yes, it's kind of microservice-y, but it's more like the applications that you're writing are built on this unit of concurrency that happens to like birth these really interesting paradigms. Microservices, typically we think of open up a JSON API or gRPC endpoint, GraphQL endpoint, and then talk to everything. And us, it's like, no, you just write an Elixir application that can talk to other processes. Like that's part of the platform. So we got a lot for free as far as the framework is concerned, because we can build on these primitives. We didn't have to come up with a RPC pattern or distributed pattern. So I think there's some really core architecture differences, but if you're trying to internalize it, yes, you can run, like you could run five Phoenix applications that serve a web server on five different ports. And that wouldn't be like this huge undertaking of, oh no, now we have global 
stuff everywhere we have to tear down. That's just like the way we build applications. Okay, that's very helpful. Just one more clarification. You said you could run five Phoenix applications. Would that literally be five separate repos that you're deploying five different applications independently? Or is there some other mental model that I'm missing here? Yeah, you could do both. So we have this concept of an umbrella application, which is just like a bunch of applications that can start and run together inside one virtual machine, or you could deploy each of them separately if you wanted to. So it's kind of like you could decide how you would want to deploy it, whether you're running a web server in one VM on five different servers or running five web servers on one VM in the same server. So you could, I guess, choose your own adventure and it's really depending on what you're going to build. Okay, so Andrew asked you a question of how it's different from Rails and you blew my mind in like the first sentence. And so I, okay. I kind of digressed. So if you want to keep going about how it's different from Rails, that would be fine. <laughs> I think those are the big ones and it's a functional programming language. So there's a lot of weeds that we could go into. But I think like the biggest one for me and like why I came from Ruby and Rails to Elixir is I wanted to do things with WebSockets. And Ruby was poor at the time for that. I think they've gotten some WebSocket features since then, but I wanted to do things that required very high concurrency, lots of users on the app and do that at scale. So Elixir is exceedingly good at doing these kind of highly concurrent things. We can run millions of users connected to a Phoenix server. We've benchmarked it up to that. So my goal really coming in was like high concurrent real-time applications. And at the time, Ruby was not a great fit for that. I still don't think it's a, a great fit, but they have been able to add real-time features over the years. So our friends at Remote Ruby just did an interview with Jose Valim, and he was talking kind of about the obscure history of Erlang in telephony and how that sort of influenced the structure of Elixir. And then that kind of plays into what you were talking about with the like 2 million connections. And as a benchmark, that just blows my mind, but it makes sense just because it comes from such a different place. I think it's amazing that Erlang was just sort of sitting there waiting for this new purpose to be repurposed in web application developments coming from that history. One thing And because you came from a Rails background, I'm curious on behalf of both myself and other folks that might be interested in taking a look at it, what was the learning curve, whether it was going from Ruby to Elixir or functional programming generally, what was that learning curve like for you? Did it happen quickly or did it take a little bit of time? Or was it the kind of thing where you started doing it and you're like, this is something that I've always been looking for. It's so much better than what I was doing before. I'd say a mix of what you just said. And also it was my first functional language. So it was a humbling experience at first. I got like an Elixir book and then just trying to do like a recursive iteration. I was like, what the heck? I couldn't wrap my head around it initially as my, like it was so different from object-oriented programming where like you have all this implicit state. But then I would say like there's this frustration gap of three weeks until like things started clicking. And it's interesting going back where an immutable functional language, like your state is like always right there in like the code that you're using. Whereas like going back to, oh, anytime I, I go back, you have like, you have no idea. Like your state of the world is like whatever's in memory on this object. So I would say it's, it's interesting looking back because now it feels so natural and so much more straightforward than my prior 15 years of OO writing. But there was this frustration graph that I always tell people like, you got to get past that. It's your first functional language. 
and then things start clicking and then it feels like cheating. Even now today, like it feels like things work and you're like, this feels like I should be having to work harder. And it's interesting is like for my journey, it's like I was hooked on like the promise of Erlang where like I wanted to write a web framework that could scale to a ton of users because Erlang can do that kind of stuff. And I wrote what I like to say is a best effort approach. I had never written Erlang. I've still never written an Erlang program. So I came in kind of like as a very novice person into distributed programming uh, and all of this. And then when we went to benchmark Phoenix channels, which is like our WebSocket real-time layer, I think we capped out at like 30,000 concurrent users originally. And what eventually got us to 2 million users was like less than 10 lines of code change. So I like to tell people like the primitives that you use to build the language of course, you could write a really, really poorly performant Elixir program, but like your best effort approach is often like very close to an optimal solution, at least in my experience. And this is coming through kind of like brute forcing my way into like, hey, I can write a distributed pub subsystem. I'm going to do this for the first time in my life. And then that scaling out to 2 million users. So I feel like I've kind of lived the beginner through just bashing the keyboard to like, how is this possibly working so well uh, experience? And I think that most people kind of have this progression. So also, I felt you were a little diplomatic with regard to WebSockets on Rails. Oh, things are getting better or something like that. Because of your background in Rails and how deeply you sort of deal with it in the Elixir world, have you kept up at all kind of with the way that that has progressed on Rails? I'm not actually sure I could tell you what the number of connections are that you can get away with in Rails. Do you know in Laravel? I'll let Aaron speak to Laravel. I can't speak to how it scales now. What I know intrinsically is like any threaded language, like even if we're talking, and I'm going to catch flack, but even if we're talking like Java, like very performant languages, if concurrency isn't cheap, you're going to struggle with a ton of concurrent users without having to kind of go outside your typical programming. So it's like if you write code in a very careful way, you could potentially support a lot of users. But if your language isn't highly concurrent, like out of the box with cheap threads, then you're gonna have to write code like in a special way. And I think Ruby has some workarounds, like one option I think is called like any cable, which is action cable can have different backends that doesn't run through the Ruby web server. So you can theoretically start up an Erlang web server to service your WebSocket collections that calls back into your Ruby code. So you end up with, kind of like these band-aid solutions that could support higher scale, but then you get into like all these other caveats. So I think the story is better than it was certainly when I left Ruby in 2013, but I think you're still going to kind of run into these caveats and either stand up additional infrastructure or pay some other service to do it for you. You call it a band-aid solution. I call it my real life and the work that I do each day. <laughs> like we definitely use any cable. It's valuable, though, I think, to know what the strengths and weaknesses of each ecosystem are. And I do think that it's really special. When I heard about that benchmark at 2 million connections and Jose saying, yeah, and I sent a Wikipedia page down the wire to all of them, I thought, well, I'll just put this out there for any of the Rails people that are listening. If you know how to do that in Rails, please get in touch. I probably have a consulting gig for you. Right. And one thing I want to touch on, I was trying to do real-time applications in Rails in 2013. The way that it could be done is you could run, I even wrote code to like, there's an adapter service. So it's like, if you wanted to use this library, I called it sync at scale, you could pay pusher. So there was like a pusher adapter. So it's like, I'm very familiar with this. Hey, to actually make this viable, 
pay some other service that calls you into your Ruby code. Like I was doing this in 2013, but the only way to, to make the program viable that called into your Ruby code was to use event machine. You're coming from Ruby. It's this event loop on Ruby, which is like JavaScript's concurrency model. So you end up kind of in this weird paradigm where it's like you can write concurrent Ruby code, but you're writing not regular Ruby code. It's like, you want to do something with active record inside event machine, like, oops, you better find some active record adapter that also is running inside an event loop inside event machine. You get into this weird valley of like only certain types of programs work well in this concurrent library. And the moment you do something wrong, you've clogged the tubes everywhere. And this kind of, we see this similarly and Java has a libraries that do this. And even like JavaScript's concurrency model is interesting because interesting in that like node is doesn't block on IO. So you can make concurrent programs, but the moment you do anything CPU bound, your entire program is slow. So I think the other interesting thing for us is we can do Erlang and Elixir are load balanced on IO and CPU. So what that means is we can just do the work we want to do when a web request comes in and the VM is going to like time slice that for us. It's not going to suddenly slow down for all users. So like a good example is imagine you ran 10,000 WebSocket connections on Node with Socket.io and you accidentally wrote some CPU bound code and one of those users took a code path that triggers that. Now all 10,000 users have a slow experience because you block the event loop, you block all users. Uh, for us, that one process of 2 million would go CPU bound. This, the VM would give it time slices of work, but everyone else would have a, a good experience still. So that's a little tangent into kind of like how our concurrency model like just lets you write code and you're not really worrying about like, am I blocking here? Do I have to do something async? It's like, no, you just write code that does the work it needs to do. I have never heard it explained that way. And that's extremely helpful. Like, I think I now more fully understand why that's valuable. And we've been talking a lot about concurrency. So do you find for Phoenix that people are reaching for Phoenix to build certain types of applications or would, so that's one question. And then the other question is, do you advocate that they reach for it for, let's say, a regular CRUD app? Or would you say, oh, if you're going to do a regular CRUD app, maybe use something else? Or are you now covering all bases, including 2 million connections? Yeah, I mean, my goal is to cover all, all bases. I mean, I think early on, you've got to buy Mindshare and like open source is like just as much marketing as it is technological merit. So I think people adopted... Elixir and Phoenix initially because like it had to have a value add over what they could already have, right? You have to make a bet on this thing. You're not unlikely to do it unless you really need it. So early on, you know, high scale companies that wanted a ton of concurrent users definitely flocked, I think, to us. But my goal with Phoenix remains to like, of course, continue to service people searching for high scale where that you can just grow your product instead of having to rewrite it. But I also want it to be like, just like the best option. Like it should be just as easy or if not easier than Laravel or Rails to write anything you want to write. It could just happen to also scale to millions of users. So I think that my goal is to just blanket, go after everything. And even if you're writing a CRUD app, I think it's still going to be a great experience and still have merit over other choices in the ecosystem. I think the offering is very compelling. And it seems to me that when people find the opportunity to reach for Elixir, it may be, so I can remember back when you were at 1.0 with Phoenix to circa 2015, we had an engineer at the company I was CTO at reach for Phoenix for a reporting dashboard. And 
it was an interesting challenge for us, I think, because we had a bunch of Rails developers and you've got this person on staff that's like, I really want to try Elixir. I really want to try Phoenix. It's getting Railsy. I think it's time. Like it's really coming into its own in 2015. So they go down that route of playing with it and they never come back. And I've seen that happen time and time again, where a developer's just basically says this thing has something that I feel like I've always been looking for. And and different technologies provide that for different people. I've heard people say the same thing about view components, for example, in Rails. It just opened their mind and they felt like that was always something they were looking to reach for. But then when somebody finds it and they adopt it and then they go into that world permanently. And so that developer never went back to doing Rails ever again. They used Elixir and they used Phoenix for every project after that. And I feel like that has been what I've seen. As people reach for it, they play around with it and then they commit to it. And it feels like as an ecosystem, it's a long slog to continue getting adoption and waiting for those people to have the opportunity because people are embedded in their careers. I get paid to do Rails full time, not me personally, but I'm speaking more generally for Rails developers or Laravel developers that it's difficult to sort of take the plunge. You can maybe use it on some side projects, but then maybe when they're looking for their next role, then they jump into it and they say, I want to do this full time. And I think that just the fact that that seems to happen, like my sample size that I'm drawing on is pretty small, but it's also people that I look up to developers that I really look up to and respect. And then all of a sudden they're not doing rails anymore. They're like, no, I just want to work in Phoenix and Elixir full time. So the timing on that, I think is challenging because I think people really need to find those opportunities to make a switch, but it feels like you've got something like you've got a gravity now in a good way where it's pulling people in and those people are staying and helping to grow the ecosystem and demonstrate provide more and more examples of like really great applications, not just for their reactivity or live view. They're not just there for the things that are like technically superior or whatever. Like, no, they're just building great apps. You look at Savvy Cal that's built on Phoenix and Elixir. And it's like, this is a best of breed. I wish he would do a starter kit in Phoenix that kind of shared some of those components or whatever, but somebody can do that. And it does seem like it's a great choice, even for the CRUD apps. Yeah, I think that developer buy-in, you know, it's tough. This is going to sound like pretentious, but like you have to be next level in some ways. Like you said, Andrew, like it's a risk for anyone to jump into something that doesn't pay the bills or it's a risk for a company to bet on a framework that they perceive as may not be around. I mean, we fortunately, you know, we're old enough now that some of those concerns are, are no longer relevant, but it's like you have to have like next level value add to give people a reason to even check you out in the first place. And then Andrew, like you said, you also have to stick around. So it's like, you have to get through that, what the trough of disillusionment, like you have to try to live up to your promise. So I feel like we've done a good job being able to keep people around. I mean, I think I constantly say like, it feels like cheating. I think that's why people stick around. It's like, they realize like what they're able to build. And even me doing this 10 years now, there's still stuff that I'm blown away by. And it's just like stuff that I built myself that, Like once you write an abstraction and then you use it and then 
it's still magic to you. Like to me, I feel like that you're definitely onto something there where you're blowing your own mind. You're like, how can this work? And you're like, I wrote this and it's still amazing. I feel like I, I'm still having those kind of like insights 10 years in. So I think there's definitely something special. Do you find that most of the developers are coming from the Rails ecosystem? I know Andrew mentioned offhand earlier that all the cool kids are leaving to go to <laughs> go to Phoenix. Um, hey, come or, on, not all of them, <laughs> just a bunch of them. And we hey, still you, love them. You said it, not me. So <laughs> do you find that they're mostly coming from Rails or because I think we've had a discussion before about it seems like all the excitement and young talent is going into the JavaScript ecosystem. So what are you seeing from your point of view, which is different than Laravel and Rails? What are you seeing from your point of view on where people are coming from and where the excitement is? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely have a ton of people from the Ruby community. I mean, I think Jose and my proximity to Ruby and Rails naturally brought a lot of people over. Syntactically, there are similarities as well. So I think that was an initial driver for early adopters to come over from Ruby, but we definitely... I think nowadays see a decent spread. I know we've got quite a few folks from PHP, even the Phoenix core team made up from a couple of people that have never touched Rails before. So it's not just everyone just flocking over from Rails, but definitely a good chunk of people have come over. And I've consulted in my prior career, prior to joining Fly, I was a consultant. So I worked with a ton of different companies and we definitely had, you know, companies, PHP, C Sharp that were making a bet on Elixir for reasons, whether it was performance Typically it was performance, but historically, I mean, I'm trying to think, we had a client that rewrote a PHP JSON API to Elixir, not doing any of the like distributed high concurrent stuff. They just chose Elixir for kind of like cruddy type web services and we're seeing wild success with that. So I feel like we have a good mix, but definitely probably the largest representation of folks come from Ruby, I would say is still true. All right. So we've mentioned Fly a couple of times, your employer. Let's talk about that a little bit. And I'm interested in two things in particular. I mean, one, it's great that they're supporting you in the work that you're doing on Phoenix. But also, Jose mentioned in his interview on Remote Ruby about the deployment story. And I had actually forgotten about this, but I remember this being a point of conversation in the past for people that were talking about Elixir. Oh, it's so great to develop in. Deploying's a bit of a pain. I mean, that's the bread and butter of Fly is trying to provide a good deployment story for all kinds of platforms. And they've been hiring people like I have friends that work there now whose goal it is to improve the deployment story for different platforms. Let's talk about the intersection of those two things. So what's the Elixir slash Phoenix deployment story on Fly? Is it the best of breed? Are there alternatives? How does that all play out? Before you do, I want to take a guess. And this is going to tell you what an outsider thinks of Fly plus Phoenix. So this is probably really valuable for you, Chris. So here's my guess. As an outsider who knows very little about Phoenix and a little bit about Fly, my guess is that Fly is really interested in Phoenix and maybe even particularly LiveView because LiveView is a server-side front-end framework, which is insane to say, but I think it's close enough to accurate. And Fly is really focused on geographically distributed servers close to the users. And so to have a server side front end framework, it really benefits to have the servers geographically close to the users. So 
That's my uninformed guess from the fly marketing. I would be curious to hear, is that what y'all are trying to put out there or is that the whole story? Take it away. Yeah, that's a good lead up. So I think you are right about, we'll touch on LiveView in a moment, how it relates to fly. Yeah. So historically the deployment experience with Elixir, like you couldn't deploy it anywhere that you could deploy a Rails app or a Node app, you could deploy Elixir. It's just like we, as in the developer community, since the early 2010s, like Heroku existed. So it was like, get push and it just works. I feel like the people say Elixir is harder to deploy and it's like, well, harder than get push Heroku or harder than like coming from PHP. I was a PHP developer in a former life. Like you just drag and drop FTP files over to your server, boom, you're running. So more difficult as far as that's concerned, but if you can run command on a server, it can run the app. So the Heroku experience for Elixir is kind of like what has been needed, I feel like, to get people thinking that that we have parity with Ruby or a Node app. But that's largely just because the hosting providers like Heroku and and what have you didn't directly target us. But where Fly comes in, and Fly wasn't on my radar, is they do geographic deployments, which is big, and they also give you a private network. And that comes into Elixir is Elixir is a distributed programming language out of the box, but you have to be careful in that you need a private network for those servers to talk to each other. They can be secured, but there's caveats to if you're running this in some cloud where like you can send network traffic across, you need to be very careful. So Fly really, their networking layer solved a lot of problems for us. And they really built the perfect platform for Elixir and Phoenix. So when I found Fly originally, I was like, this is exactly what I've been waiting for because you get this private IPv6 network that's just connected around the world. So I I could spin up a server in the US East Coast, West Coast, and one in Sydney, Australia, and they can just talk to each other. And since they can talk to each other, I could write an Elixir program on my laptop, deploy it to these two continents, and they'll just connect to each other transparently. And when you write the, your blog message for a Phoenix app, it's just going to show up across the world. Like you wouldn't have to like suddenly add infrastructure to do that. So I think the really interesting parts of Fly is geographic deployments, but with a private network between those servers. And why that's important for Phoenix and LiveView beyond, hey, distributed programming is cool, is what I've been working on for the last few years with Phoenix is a library called Phoenix LiveView which Aaron touched on, it's like, imagine if you took React and you put it on the server, which React has actually done over the last year. And we can touch on that. We've come full circle. I took React, I put it on the the React programming model, put it on the server where you could have dynamic server rendered apps. But the caveat when you do that is one, it could be expensive for the server, but it happens to be that Elixir is very good at running concurrent programs. But you know, you're running the state on the server. Anytime the state changes, you can update the UI over WebSockets. But if your users are in Australia talking to a server on the US East Coast, you know, they're going to have high latency there. So Fly is perfect by putting servers closer to users. So it's almost like if you could take the CDN model, where like we deploy our assets on CDNs because we want users to have fast access to images and our JavaScripts. So it's like, well, what if we just put our whole app there instead? We know that like intrinsically CDNs are good because assets should load fast. Well, maybe our whole app should just load fast. So like Fly went off and built this perfect hosting platform. I found them. Kurt and I had a conversation just to like, how could we get Phoenix working better on Fly? And that was like my first thing. Like, what is Fly? We had one conversation and I was like, okay, this is amazing. And anyway, the conversation kind of started and like, maybe we should hire you. So anyway, that's the whirlwind tour of what's cool about Fly and why it's perfect for live views. Because like you could run, imagine if you could run like, just like we deploy game servers, game servers for Xbox Live should be close to users. 
because those users physically co-located there because of the speed of light. It's like, well, we can actually do that for our live view processes now for users. So where the user can, they click something on a web page and that server happens to be 10 millisecond hop away, that's going to be a way better experience than if they're a 200 millisecond hop across the ocean. I'm going to say this part and we can decide whether we want to edit it out later. But as I've been listening and kind of like reviewing the landscape of Elixir and Phoenix and Live View and Fly, um, it makes me think of NFTs and crypto in the inverse. Aaron's like, we're already cutting this out. Yeah, I'm nervous already. But you said inverse, so keep going. Yeah, so... The, the thing with a lot of crypto stuff and NFTs and all of that stuff is people ask about the use cases. Okay, what's the real world application of, they're literally like the whole decentralized, and that's the pattern match, right? The whole decentralized philosophy, they're having to rebuild everything from first principles because of this obsession with decentralization. And then you get to it and you're like, yeah, but what are the use cases that are like meaningfully better than what we're already kind of accomplishing in our centralized world? So you leave that behind. And you're like, all right, have fun, crypto folks and folks working on NFTs and all of that stuff and DAOs and whatever. Have a great time. Hope you have a lot of fun. And then you fast forward a few months and we're looking at all of this stuff together. And the use cases just jump out at me. Think of all the things I could build that are not like my tools of choice, the ones that I'm most familiar with. And so you build with what you have. And there's some like baked in limitations to what you will practically build with Ruby and Rails. Like I don't build video games on the weekend or like online collaborative games and things like that. But if I were in Phoenix and Elixir, people do that. Even when you tell them not to, they still do it. And so you think of the use cases that you're talking about it's not just like technical superiority or sometimes developers go down rabbit holes where it's like, I'm not sure there's a ton of value there. With the stuff that you're talking about, the value is evident. The products that you can build with this are evident and it's, it seems like a, a unique value proposition of the platform and the framework that you've built. I think it's incredible. I can make a point here that's just, it's probably going to offend some folks and I wanna be careful. On the point of the crypto space and NFTs, which is a trigger for me, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but other than, yeah, <laughs> other than, yeah, ab absolutely ridiculous space, full of pain, misery, despair, scams. Okay. But if we say like <laughs> those folks are trying to reinvent the world just to accomplish like what we can already do, it's a very interesting point because I, I see this same thing happening in the JavaScript space. And I, I want to be very careful here, loving accusations, but you see these hosting providers with tons of investment where it's like, hey, we can run a JavaScript application close to users and it's going to be fast, a good deployment experience, like, but you have to like buy into like, oh, all your data needs to be stored on us. Oh, you're going to pay per transaction. We've got this thing called durable objects. Like we're going to put those around the world, but you can pay us and, and never leave us because like we're the biggest black box that exists. So like we're seeing all these ecosystems pop up around trying to provide value add to like write apps close to users because that's a good thing because the speed of light exists. But like first they have to invent the universe and the universe is like, you know, we have to invent separate universes and if you pay us a lot of money and never leave us and we never go out of business, you can have a viable product. And for me, like my goal is like with Phoenix, we can write full step app. We can sidestep the entire JavaScript labyrinth of complexity just 
even if we're talking deploying a JavaScript app on Heroku, not, let, let alone in the AWS Lambda or Cloudflare Worker, which is like a Nerf JS runtime kind of, it's JavaScript, but like it's our own JavaScript runtime. There's like this ridiculous labyrinth of complexity, or I could just write like my Phoenix full stack app and I could like run that thing in Sydney or and I can run that thing on the West coast of the US. I can put it in Tokyo and do anything I want there, including running a user interface and have the same speeds that I would have running like a Vercel or Cloudflare worker close to a user. So I think this idea of not having to reinvent the world is like what we're able to do with Elixir and Phoenix and Erlang. It's like, no, we could just write a full stack app and like just do the things you're used to doing. You want to write to a file system? Hey, there's a file system there on the server. Let's just do that. And then like a lot of stuff melts away. This idea of CDNs is also interesting because if you're running your entire app close to a user, your app is the CDN. You can start like chopping off infrastructure layers where all these other platforms are like, oh, just add this new infrastructure layer and you get new features. For us, it's like, no, we're trying to kill as many infrastructure layers as we can. So like PubSub is one example where like we obviated entire business models. I was using Pusher in 2013 and then I wrote Phoenix PubSub. It just works on a cluster. It's like that goes away and it's just built in and everything's free and you can run 2 million users. My goal is to like do that as much as possible. CDN, unless you're like trying to serve content to unbound a number of users, that completely falls away. And like the more and more we can do that is the better. And I'm trying to do that with the framework. Uh, so LiveView lets you, you know, sidestep the JavaScript complexity, but also if you use Phoenix LiveView, and I want to touch on this because it was a recent revelation. I was writing a blog post actually for Fly, which isn't published yet. And I had this revelation that the Phoenix LiveView programming model started because I wanted my Ruby app to do something dynamic. Like you've got a static page and you're like, if I could just click a button here and like in a few lines of code, it changed the page. That would be magic to me. I built Phoenix and this WebSocket layer. But once I got there, I still had this idea of like, it would be nice just to make a page dynamic. And that's where Phoenix LiveView started, where like if you could have a template on the server that was stateful, you do some state change and the template re-renders just like a React app. And then like we would have this small implementation detail that we sent the UI update over a WebSocket connection. I was just kind of starting with this, let's make a page dynamic. And what accidentally fell out of that was like, we ended up chopping off like multiple layers of, of abstraction from a web app. And I didn't appreciate this until recently. Once we did this, like we tried to make a web page dynamic, you want a button on a page to do something. And in doing that, you no longer are writing any kind of HTTP details. There are no routes to write in your application. You don't have to add a controller to then like serialize some JSON data structure. Like you don't have to figure out like, well, I'm rendering some users. So like write a user serializer to pick out the fields I want. Or you say like, well, what if the client doesn't always want all these user fields? So you're like, well, GraphQL exists, solve this. The client can say, I only want these fields. So you write a typed GraphQL schema. The client can get minimal data. What fell out of the programming model for us was you write this naive template on the server and we'll send them minimal data that changed. And we have like RPC messages going back and forth. So those replace the entire HTTP stack. You don't write routes. You don't write controller files. You don't have to think about how to serialize data. It just gets sent down the wire. And the client doesn't have to say, only give me these keys for a user because that just falls out of a naive HTML template. So it's like GraphQL goes away. HTTP goes away. You're not thinking about HTTP verbs. Like you're not thinking about HTTP at all. So like for me, the goal is to like kill parts of the stack as much as possible and reduce the dependency on any external vendors. And that's kind of where we ended up versus what I'm seeing elsewhere in the world. Let's first create this new universe of abstractions and things to pay for.
Yeah, it's interesting. One of my favorite, I don't know if DHH coined this phrase, but I just looked it up real quick and it looks like maybe he did. Conceptual compression. That's one of my favorite concepts or phrases out there. And it is exactly what you described. It's just so much simpler. And then on the proprietary platform stuff, I think it's critical to think about that in terms of adoption by new generations of developers. If you think of getting people into software development, well, if you want to get students into software development, you need to do that in a way that is accessible to them for free without commercial strings attached. And so I think that there's sort of an altruistic reason to continue focusing on that, I think, in all of our software ecosystems as well, trying to keep things freely available and open source where possible. Yeah, you talked about all of the things that melt away with LiveView, and I have done just a little bit of LiveWire, which is our implementation of LiveView basically over in Laravel. And you're absolutely right. It's the same kind of feeling I had when I first used Tailwind. And I was like, oh, I don't have to come up with made up names for all of this garbage, like container left side article. It's like, I can just put the freaking classes on it. When I was using LiveWire, I didn't have to come up with, like you said, the serializers, the controllers, the routes, the handling of JSON on the other side. Did you find other ecosystems? I know that there's obviously LiveWire. Did you find other ecosystems look at LiveView and say, that seems simpler, that seems better, we should also do that? And did you have any interaction with Caleb Porgia when he was writing LiveWire on the Laravel side? Yeah, so I've I've had interaction with Caleb. He's awesome. No other authors, but I I think at the same time Phoenix LiveView was released, .NET has Blazor, which is a a framework. There's like also a client-side portion of that, but the .NET community was doing something very similar in the space at the same time. LiveView was happening, but since LiveView was released, we've seen basically every community do something similar. And I can't say that this is because of LiveView, but it does seem to me that the JavaScript space like React is doing like React server components now. So it's like, I wanted to put like the React model on the server and then React folks were like, wait a second, LiveView put React on the server, we should put React on the server. So it's interesting that we're coming full circle and the JavaScript community is approaching it. Like we're coming at it from different sides of the spectrum. We moved everything from the server and we're like making it, we're moving as close to the client as we can to like make the data payloads very small. And they're coming from the JavaScript side and like, what can we put on the server? The biggest difference is like, we have a stateful bi-directional model, but we are seeing, I think every language that I can think of from Haskell to Go has a live view type thing. Like where the readme of the project would be like Phoenix live view for Go for language here, which is awesome to see, but it definitely has resonated with folks. I feel like something intrinsic to not having to deal with all this complexity to effectively solve the same problem has resonated for sure. I think it must be very satisfying to have worked on something that was really, you mentioned other people were coming up with a similar idea at the same time. That's fine. Without discounting the fact that they also had a discovery, kind of like who discovered calculus or whatever. But it must be deeply satisfying to have contributed something to not just your own ecosystem, but computer science generally. And I feel like That's in the DNA of this little show that Aaron and I decided to start doing was just recognizing that 
there are these things that evolve in their individual ecosystems. It could be approaches to, you know, marketing a framework, or it could be something deeply technical, like what you accomplished and conceptual, really totally novel idea. And then realizing that, yes, that can be a unique selling proposition because of the technical underpinnings in Phoenix and in Elixir, but also that it doesn't have to stop there, that there may be people that are in businesses that exist and they will never be on Phoenix and Elixir because they are huge businesses that employ hundreds of people. But even those developers' lives can be improved by the ideas that you made generally available. And the fact that you didn't patent it or try to extract some sort of like value exchange with people, but you put it out there and the best of breed version of it for sure is in your own ecosystem. I have no doubt about that. And that's from my own perspective, even using the stuff that we have in Rails that's similar, like you all are tailor made for that particular problem that you're solving for. But many of us have taken inspiration from it and applied that and our lives are better for it. I have to imagine that's very satisfying for you to see something that has gone out pan framework, pan ecosystem, all of computer science, all of software development, every language in the world, human spoken languages, developers are doing things and working with approaches that came out of your brain. (laughs) That's a bold statement, but it's fascinating to see. And I think the most interesting thing is like folks came from, if they remember, if they're old enough, when React first came on the scene, I think the React developers were like, they self-admitted that when they were making it, they were like, people are going to hate this, like <laughs> hate this idea. It's been kind of fulfilling for it to be like, I knew it was going to be a contentious way to build applications and it, it remains a contentious way to build apps. And I think people also don't really internalize what it's truly about. They think it's just like, oh, since it's on the server, it's got to be worse is better. But it has been really kind of like fulfilling to see it like kind of take on a life of its own. And like people actually understand now that like, oh, this could be a better way to build apps in cases, not like a severe caveat to like, oh, if you don't want to write JavaScript, maybe that is an okay, but heavy approach. It's like, no, this may just be a better way to build apps depending on what you're trying to build. So that's been really fun to like kind of see the haters turn into believers. Even on the Phoenix team, when I was first writing this, we had a couple of folks on the team that were like, this is a bad idea, Chris. <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> and they've come around. <laughs> they were like, okay, I was wrong. But yeah, it's absolutely been fun to see this kind of take on a life of its own. So in the last couple of minutes here, I kind of want to talk about your ecosystem in general, the parts that you think are totally fleshed out and the places that there are opportunities for maybe other people to come into the ecosystem, potentially bring some of their ecosystem knowledge over to Phoenix and maybe execute on something similar or slightly different. So do you see like some places that are missing, maybe even some commercial things that are missing, some paid packages or paid SaaS offerings or anything like that? As the leader of this ecosystem, how do you view the whole landscape? I'll add to that question as well. I think that one of the refrains that has sort of repeated itself over the years about package parity. So, oh, we're in terms of rails, like we have all these packages, we have all this wealth. It's all this stuff that has been built up over the years. And I'm curious to hear as well, maybe speak to that point a little and how that's evolved, because it has to be that you're now covering more and more of that surface area. But yeah, to Aaron's question as well, what's still missing? What are the opportunities for people to provide something 
in the Phoenix ecosystem. What's missing? Yeah, the package parity earlier on, that was the biggest thing. I mean, for me, right? I was like, oh, I want to build everything in Elixir once I found Elixir. And I was like, well, since I build web applications, I guess I need a web framework. So I had to write one, right? So over the years, those cases become less and less. You need an S3 library. Well, we have an S3 library. Or you need an authentication device for Elixir. Uh, Phoenix has a, a built-in authentication generator now. So like most things I think folks need, the, the kind of the things that they would expect to be there are there. But obviously a community that lives for decades or 15 years before we started is going to have more packages. But I think that's a much less of a problem now compared to, let's say, five years ago for folks coming in. On As far as what's not there, I think my goals for the framework itself are to continue to eat away at, this is going to sound pretentious again, but like my goal with LiveView isn't to replace single page application frameworks. I think they have excellent options. Multiple options in the ecosystem are excellent. They have their use cases, but like I want to obviate them for a large number of apps. So I use the term obviate, like to make unnecessary. And I think that's my goal for the framework. If you have bold ideas, like I want to build a scalable global application. I want you to be able to just go do that without having to pay a service to send messages across the planet. Durable objects from Cloudflare is a good example. One of the things that I want to build long-term with Phoenix is like we have this Phoenix PubSub, which is distributed PubSub. There's Phoenix Presence, which we haven't talked about, which you can see who's online on the cluster. That's built in, but it's not backed by durable storage. So there's a layer here that exists commercially and various hosting platforms where like you can pay someone money and they'll put your state all over the world and allow you to have these like durable actors. And it's like, no, we have a distributed programming model with distributed actors already. We just need to write a, an abstraction that allows them to back up their data and send it across the cluster. So I think long-term, my goal is to explore kind of like the distributed actor space, distributed durable actor space within a Phoenix PubSub project. And that way, we're chipping away at more and more why you would use kind of these other services. So like, I think we're already pretty close. Like just like we kind of obviated Pusher, you want scalable WebSockets for free. We did that 10 years ago at this point. So I want to eat into more and more of those use cases. The CDN is also another good example. If I'm already running my app across the world, I should just have something that can replicate files across the world. So if anyone's interested in kind of like a file replication or kind of distributed kind of a distributed programming toolkit is what I want to build out of Phoenix PubSub. Those uh, remain to be solved, but it's definitely what's on my mind long-term. So looking out from where you are, you have created an incredible world that you, your friends, some of my friends get to live in and really enjoy the work that you get to do every day, creating this new world with a ton of use cases and reasons why you're building it. I love it. What do you see when you look out from the vantage point that you've given yourself, obviously incredible strengths, you know what they are. Are there any things that you look out at in other ecosystems that you still kind of think, oh, there's an inspiration or there's something that I can look up to as we're building out this relatively new or newer ecosystem in some cases, or maybe there are newer ecosystems that have also cropped up where you're like, oh, that's a strength, that looks great. Are there any things like that when you look out, you think we can do that, we can benefit from that, we could do more of that? 
the .NET community, and I have the least touch point with .NET. Like I, I did like a C sharp course in college, but beyond that, I'm not really in that community. But what they have is Microsoft created a framework called Orleans, and it was written for like Xbox Live. And I touched on kind of this distributed, durable actor thing. That's definitely what I take inspiration from when I think about that. Before I would go start working on something like that, I would go read a an Orleans book. If you think about like Xbox Live, like you've got these virtual actors. So like you have something, let's say, representing a game lobby who's there. And what represents the game state, you ideally want to put that close to wherever most of those actual players are. So you have this idea of like, I've got a program running that has this state. So this actor, and I want to be able to move that around across servers. So this is where you get into distributed Durable virtual actors is what I want to build for for Elixir in that I already have these actors that I can talk to across the network. That's just built in. But can I be able to say, move this one now from this server to this other server? And where I'm taking inspiration from that is what the Orleans folks have done. Akka in the Akka framework for Java is also doing something similar in this space. So there's definitely some prior art here that I look at it and I'm like, they had to like first invent the universe to even build their primitives. So like I'm taking inspiration there, but much of the hard problem for me has already been solved by the virtual machine. So I kind of am spoiled in that regard where I can take inspiration and then like much of the hard problem of like talking to servers is already solved. I love it, man. Andrew, I'm glad you asked that. And Chris, your two answers, I've heard of neither of them. And so I'm really excited about this because Phoenix obviously is web, but Elixir Erlang, the whole deal is so far beyond me and the stuff that I've done historically that I feel like there's a lot of really interesting stuff to learn about that I have never even heard of. Like you said, Orleans. And I was like, that's never crossed my Twitter feed once. And so this world that you live in, I feel like straddles both traditional full stack MVC web or whatever. And then this other historically telecom, you know, distributed computing stuff. That's really interesting. So I'm just super glad that you came by today. This is amazing. Yeah. And I love it on that answer because the two things that you mentioned, and I think that this is something that we need to get past in our own little pockets of the industry. You mentioned .NET and Java. Like, I think in other contexts, people would in the Rails community or in PHP or whatever, in Laravel, you might have developers that kind of like, that's like the punchline of a joke. They look down on Java that they maybe worked with in the past or they see the Microsoft stuff. There's some history there for those of us who have been at it for a while. And I think that there really isn't a place for that. If you want to get the best possible results in your own ecosystem, you're not above anybody and you're not above the engineers that are doing work in those ecosystems. They're not excluded from having distinct, unique novel insights into how we solve problems on this infrastructure that we're all building on top of. And so I love that those were the two answers. It was like the ones that sometimes people would roll their eyes about or whatever. I think that was really cool. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. And everybody's going to want to know where they can get your crypto investing advice. So (laughs) where do people find you on the internet? Oh, wow. Yeah. Chris underscore McCord on Twitter is where I exist. But yeah, I don't really really have any hot takes, but uh, this is (laughs) if you're looking for hot crypto takes. Yeah, you you might have to find me in private. But yeah, I think anything Elixir related, happy to chat with folks. Uh, Also, the Elixir Slack 
room. I'm generally available. So if folks are hopping in, just getting started, I'm always happy to answer questions. And I meant what I said earlier, Chris, many of us are working with tools and approaches and living in a world that originated in the things that you shared with all of us. So thanks for those gifts. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I I love people basically using things that I built. I love building things that build other things. So I feel like it's like the ultimate meta thing to be able to build a framework that somehow people can use to like build novel things I would have never thought of. Framework Friends is edited by Paul Barr at Peachtree Sound. Our intro music was created by Corey Griffin. You can find us at frameworkfriends.com. Andrew's on Twitter at Andrew Culver. And Aaron is on Twitter at Aaron D. Francis. 